This is the Average to Savage podcast with Paul Garino. Everyone and anyone, athletes, celebs, and much more. What's up, everybody? I'm back for another episode of the Average Savage podcast. I got my co-host, Aaron Burrell, our special guest today, uh, journalist, soccer journalist, Grant Wall. Grant, how's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? We're doing good. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Grant, we'll pick us up and, and uh, get kind of where we were starting pre-show is just some, uh, some soccer talk, uh, especially U.S. soccer talk. Uh, for uh, fans like myself, it's been definitely an interesting qualification cycle. Uh, I feel like there's been a million and one overreactions. There's been a lot of things going on. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll start with just your take and your thoughts on, on how, how the campaign has gone so far. Well, the U.S. is six games into the 14-game qualifying campaign, and they're on track to qualify for the World Cup. You know, that's all that really matters when it comes down to it for these 14 qualifiers. And I totally understand that fans have some PTSD from not qualifying for 2018. And so I do think there's going to be some emotional reactions when the team inevitably doesn't you know, have some games where it plays very well. So the U.S. had its first loss uh, in qualifying in Panama in this most recent window, and they performed poorly in that game. They probably deserved to lose. Uh, and yet these were three games, two home games, one away game. They did win the two home games and came out of it with six points from the window. So overall, um, is the U.S. on track to qualify? Yes. Overall, are they playing well? At times, yes. Uh, are they going to need to get better for the World Cup itself? Most definitely, yes. But um, it's been really interesting to follow this U.S. team because it's so young. It's the youngest U.S. men's national team we've ever seen. And it's true that a lot of these guys are playing for big European clubs, but a lot of them haven't experienced, most of them have not experienced what it's like to go through World Cup qualifying in CONCACAF, where a lot of times it's not about the soccer. It's about how you can handle hostile crowds and bad fields and bad refereeing and gamesmanship from the other teams, and occasionally some good soccer from the other teams, and deal with the tough aspects of that that maybe you don't encounter so much when you're playing for Barcelona or Chelsea or Dortmund. Definitely. And like you said, it's, it's a very young squad. And with that, there have been players who have stepped up who, you know, plenty of us probably, uh, you know, prior to the cycle starting would not have necessarily expected them to make the impact that they have made. Uh, I would love to hear who uh, are the players who stepped up that have surprised you the most during, during the cycle so far. You know, there's a few. Ricardo Pepe is just 18 years old, center forward with FC Dallas, only a couple months ago decided to play for the United States national team as opposed to Mexico, which he was also eligible to play for. He's from the El Paso area near the border. Um, and in his first game ever with the U.S. senior national team, a qualifier at Honduras scores the game-winning goal and then scores two goals in the next game when the U.S. beat Jamaica and is having a terrific MLS season to the point where he's likely to get bought by a European team in January, as soon as January. Um, so Ricardo Pepe is like probably the biggest name that has emerged in these six games so far, but there's two, you know, Brandon Aronson is a winger who's 
been pressed into more minutes because Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna have been hurt. And Aronson moved from Philadelphia Union to Salzburg in Austria just in January. And he's already improved by leaps and bounds since January. He's doing great in Champions League where Salzburg is leading its group. Hasn't lost a, a single game this season yet, including in Champions League. And has, he's performed really well, scored a couple goals for the U.S. in these qualifying games. So those are some standouts, I think. But also Yunus Musa, another 18-year-old, um, plays for Valencia in Spain, chose to play for the U.S. over England was the main competition, though he's eligible for other countries too. Um, and he's been a little up and down. He had a rough game in, in the Panama loss, but he was terrific at home in the two games this window against Jamaica in that win and against Costa Rica in that win. The World Cup, they're they're pitching it for every two years. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Bad idea. It's turning into a farce <laughs> basically day by day. Um, it's not too complicated. The World Cup has always been men's or women's once every four years, kind of like the Olympics. But FIFA, that's, you know, the men's World Cup is the only real revenue producer for FIFA in a four-year period. And so this is all about money, as you might expect. Uh, FIFA wants to have men's World Cups every two years. They'd get twice as much revenue and be able to distribute that revenue to each national association that's a member. Um, but there's a lot of pushback as you might expect. And, you know, who would lose the most if FIFA had a World Cup men's and women's every two years? Uh, the, the confederations, the continental associations would lose the most, you know, no, none more than UEFA, the European group. And so they're clearly fighting it and the individual nation, national associations in Europe are fighting it. And, if those groups threaten to boycott the World Cup, you know, the top, most, many of the top teams in the world are European national teams. So it's, it's not very complicated. Um, I just think it's a little silly for FIFA to try and couch, all, you know, this desire for more revenue. They're trying to give all these other reasons and they think we're kind of stupid uh, and, and that we'll believe those. But I, I kind of, I just don't, think the men's world cup will end up going to once every two years what they might do is institute a sort of nit type second level tournament like a world championship for teams that don't qualify for the world cup um i could see that happening and that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing just don't call it a world cup yeah. which is the indication that we got this week from the FIFA president, but I think they're kind of just throwing stuff at the wall right now. And um, I just don't want to see them ruin the sport or, you know, I think the World Cup's the greatest sporting event there is, but I think one of the reasons it is that way is because it's once every four years. And if you have it too much, too often, I think you'll end up diluting it. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think, uh, I think that's the thing that FIFA potentially are forgetting in this. Uh, and even as you, as you say, adding more competition, like to go to like the Europa Conference League, adding that, do you feel like we're in danger of the game being too diluted by adding too many games? 
there's a lot of dangers here, but that's a big one. And I think also just player safety. Um, you can only play so many games of a high level in one calendar year. And we, the authorities just keep adding more and more games, more and more tournaments. Um, you know, even we see World Cup qualifying in Europe and, and for the US as well. They're playing three games now in seven day windows. They've never done that before. They've only played two in each window in the past. And so when you combine that with all the travel around to these three games, in addition to the travel, a lot of these players are flying over from Europe, flying back to Europe. You're asking a lot of the players. And I do wonder if this is gonna potentially um, cause the players to, internationally to form a stronger players union because in soccer everything's so fragmented by country and stuff the the players unions that do exist are nowhere near as powerful as the nfl players union or the nba or mlb players unions and if the soccer the top soccer players in the world decided okay we're going to have a strong players union and threaten to not play in a World Cup if it's every two years, they'll be a lot, they'll have a lot more power. They just haven't done it yet. So I'm curious to see if that finally happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then what do you what do you think? You think it's important for uh, MLS players to be on the US national team? Yeah, I mean it is. Um, and it's interesting to see this current US men's national team, which has a lot of young players who are already in Europe, but there's also some players that are currently playing in MLS and may soon go to Europe, but they're currently in MLS. So Matt Turner, the goalkeeper, has played all but one of the qualifying games. He's with New England Revolution, fantastic shot stopper, could very well go to Europe soon. Um, and then, uh, you know, Pepe's still in MLS for now. Um, Walker Zimmerman captained the U.S. team, the defender in Panama. Um, he plays in Nashville. Uh, Sebastian Legette plays for LA Galaxy. When Jordan Morris gets healthy and comes back from his ACL injury, playing with Seattle, he'll, he'll be with the national team. One thing I've gotten a sense of, and, and I've written about this on my Substack site and my coverage of the team, um, is that there's this US team right now does not seem to be divided internally between factions. And so under Jurgen Klinsmann, there was a division between the German born players who had joined that team and the rest of the team. And under Bruce Arena after that, there was a division between the MLS based players and the European based players. And everybody I've talked to on this current U.S. men's national team says there really aren't any divisions. And the MLS-based guys are friends with the European-based guys. And there's a really good atmosphere inside this U.S. team. Now, you still got to bring it on the field. But if the chemistry is good inside the team, that does carry over, I believe, and I think the players believe, to how they play together on the field. Yeah, definitely. I, and I want to switch gears now and go more into the, the journalism side. Like, so how and why did you get into sports journalism? Um, I decided the second 
I was in high school and realized I was not going to be a professional athlete, which didn't take very long, that I really enjoyed writing. I would love to write for Sports Illustrated. I remember talking to friends about it in high school. I had gotten a gift subscription to Sports Illustrated when I was like eight years old for Christmas, and I read it cover to cover every week. And so I went about trying to do that, you know, it, my, when I was still in high school. So um, went to college at Princeton. Uh, they didn't have a journalism degree, but they had a school newspaper. So I went to the sports department the first week I got there and, uh, and ended up writing for the school newspaper, ended up uh, taking some really good writing courses um, in magazine writing as well with some really prominent active writers, you know? So like one of them was with David Remnick, who is the editor of the New Yorker now and the guy who ran People Magazine at the time. And uh, this famous Vietnam War correspondent for the New York Times named Gloria Emerson and put everything into those courses and ended up getting some wonderful recommendations from them when I was finally applying for jobs at the end of college. So I got a foot in the door at Sports Illustrated um, as a fact checker, which isn't even really a writer, um, but got in the building right after graduating and decided I was gonna either, I was gonna give myself three years to be a full-time writer or I would try and be a, become a newspaper writer somewhere else. Got to be a full-time writer within a year and ended up staying there for almost 25 years. So that's kind of how it went. Incredible. Um, now, I, recently on Twitter, I know that there's been a lot of buzz about what an actual uh, sports journalist is or the definition of a journalist. I'd love to know what your definition of a journalist is. Oh, wow. Um, I think what we do see lately is there's a, been a blurring of the lines between journalism and entertainment. And um, there's no reason that journalism can't be entertaining, but there is also entertainment that I wouldn't call journalism, right? And I don't wanna get pretentious about anything. I think like uh, journalism's pretty straightforward, but if there's a word that I use to describe what I do, I would call it, you know, I'm a journalist. Um, and so, that involves dealing in fact, uh, not having really any gray area on that. Um, and, um, you know, I do opinion, I do analysis, but a lot of it is what I would call, I've earned that point of view with my reporting. And so I always wanna be interviewing people. I always wanna be, um, learning new things. And if I'm learning new things, my readers will learn new things. So when I started this Substack site on, in August, I made sure to get a travel budget from Substack because a lot of people on Substack are sort of pontificators and that's fine. And a lot of them have, you know, really built a nice business doing that. But for me, my bread and butter is doing journalism. So um, I think the kind of journalism that people will want to pay for is really high-end stuff. And so that's why I want to do things that not everyone is doing. I'm, and so I'm covering 
know, there's other journalists covering all the U.S. World Cup qualifiers, but I am making the promise that every magazine-style story you get after every game comes at 9 a.m. Eastern, and it's going to have content that you don't see elsewhere. And that requires a lot of work. Um, you know, and so I'm going to go to Europe and do, you know, magazine-style, deeply reported stories over there that you're just not going to see elsewhere. Like, I learned you know, years ago that my, what I do best from a quality perspective is much better tied to subscriptions than to clicks and advertising. You know, and advertising's gone, well, and advertising's gone away to a large extent. Um, it's gone to Facebook and Google. And so, um, so you've seen advertising in all types of publications, whether it's traditional print magazines like Sports Illustrated or, online digital advertising has gone down for those publications. And if you're just tied to a strategy of clicks and advertising, you're incentivizing quantity, not quality. And that's not me. I don't wanna be on a hamster wheel just churning out content that's not very good. And I'd much rather do really high quality stuff that you'll be willing to pay for with subscriptions and maybe not churning out as much quantity, but, but doing really good work. Yeah, I definitely feel that like quality over quantity, that classic saying. Um, I know you have a podcast to uh, football and it just got picked up by Dan Lebetard and friends. Um, and then you have a mini series now with Landon Donovan to talk about the U.S. Uh, national team. So how did all that come about? That's been really exciting because I actually worked with Dan Lebetard. I was an intern at the Miami Herald when he was there back in the summer of 1996. So I remember playing, you know, pick up basketball with Dan Lebetard and all these other great writers for the Miami Herald. They had an amazing sports department then. It was a wonderful three month experience for me. Um, and then he co-founded Metalark with John Skipper, the former ESPN president. And um, and I've known John for a really long time, and he's had a huge impact on the sport of soccer. He likes soccer. One of the few people at his level at ESPN over the years who liked the sport. And he, I give him credit for turning the World Cup into a truly big time event in the United States with ESPN's coverage, the way they covered 2010 in South Africa in 2014 in Brazil, it was absolutely first rate. And, and that was driven by John Skipper. So I met John back in 2006 and close to working together a few times over the years. And it hadn't happened, but we stayed in touch. And so when he started Meadowlark, um, I checked in with him to see if he was interested in, in doing some cool soccer stuff. And he was. And so this... Uh, this podcast that we do with Landon Donovan, the U.S. legend uh, in terms of soccer, you know, we have these instant reaction podcasts that we do after every U.S. World Cup qualifier. And Landon and Chris Whittingham, the guys I do it with, have been terrific. Um, really enjoy those conversations. I think listeners are too. And then I also have a twice weekly podcast that is with Meadowlark. Um, you know, it's kind of a partnership. And I've been doing that podcast since May of 2020. We've done over 160 episodes. They're based on interesting interviews 
with you know a wide spectrum of soccer people and then soccer talk generally with me and chris whittingham who's also on the levitard show uh now i know you joined cbs sports recently uh as well um and as far as you know we've had a lot of networks uh in just my time growing up as that have covered soccer and i think uh currently i think cbs is doing a phenomenal job so i would love to hear uh what that process was like joining and uh how you've liked it so far yeah, I mean, CBS is doing a great job with soccer and they went from zero to 100 <laughs> in a very short amount of time. They basically hadn't done anything in the sport and then they got the UEFA Champions League rights, which that's the premier club competition in the world. So clearly the strategy with CBS is they're you know using soccer to help build their Paramount Plus streaming service because that's where most of their soccer rights are. Um, and so I've been in, in talks with them for, for a little while. And where we eventually got to was, I'm gonna do TV appearances for CBS, uh, Talking Soccer, which started recently. Uh, I was doing reports from the, the two US home games during World Cup qualifying, and then uh, documentary films. And I think it's really cool that CBS doesn't have to be doing their own documentary films on soccer for their Paramount Plus service, but they are. And so their strategy involves quality as well. Like, you know, if you're going to charge a subscription fee, you're going to need to give readers quality. And I think they've been doing that on the game broadcast, but for them to add the soccer docs, I'm, I'm really excited about the projects that we're embarking on. Um, and that was kind of my thing. I, I wanted to piece together doing as much really high quality work as possible. And, and also owning as much of my own content as possible. So I'm able to do that with my writing on the Substack side. I own all my content on the podcast side. On the TV side, it's a little hard for an individual to own your own content to any large extent, but that's why I am with CBS. And, and I have the freedom also like, with Metal Arc, we're going to be doing some some docs as well on soccer. So hopefully that announcement will come out soon. But like it's it's a really exciting time, I think, for for high quality soccer storytelling. I've been doing this, you know, for you know since the mid '90s. But one neat thing is is that the streaming services, the big ones like Netflix and Amazon and um, Apple and whomever you know, they're global. And so if they love having good soccer stories for the global audience, and who knows, you might have a Ted Lasso that catches on in the US as well. And so there's a lot more interest in, in soccer storytelling now than there's ever been since I've been doing this. There's yeah. a few follow-ups I definitely want to take this in, uh, but to start would be, you, you kind of touched on it with streaming. Um, I remember when I was a kid, if, you know, it was extremely hard to watch sports. It was, or not to watch sports, I'm sorry, to watch soccer specifically. Yes. You watch sports very easily. Soccer was not always, was not always so easy. Now with streaming services, I have seen even at the grassroots level, kids wearing jerseys and supporting players that I'm like, I would have never known about this uh, when I was your age. But as a veteran in the business, how is it for you to see this change from, you know, we've, we've gone from television to now streaming. How is that? I mean, in the soccer space, you're totally right. It's, it's revolutionized 
our ability in the United States to watch professional soccer from around the world, from the US, from wherever. I mean, we literally went, I'm serious. We went from being one of the worst countries in the world to watch soccer in, in the United States as recently as like maybe the early 2000s to one of the best countries in the world in which to watch professional soccer. You can see soccer from everywhere in the United States now. Now, the, the downside of that, I would say, is that you do have to pay for it most of the time. And that's where, um, you know, I'm a cord cutter. So one of the reasons I cut the cord was because I found myself subscribing to a lot of streaming services for soccer and, Cable actually didn't have as much at a certain point. There's still some, but it's funny. I also just recently bought an indoor HD antenna so that I can, like, there's, there is a bit more soccer on free-to-air TV now, including Spanish language. And I, I'm finding that approach very interesting because you can watch Champions League for free on Univision over the air, and, you know, most of the time for CBS, you're having to, to go to on a, on a pay streaming service and it's just different strategies, but for the consumer, there's a lot of availability now. And I love that. I love that ab ability to see that much soccer. I can't watch all of it, obviously nobody could, but it's, it's nice to have the choice. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I've matter of fact, to plug your uh, CBS, to plug CBS, I was watching a Brazil Real game and I was watching, uh, I think it was Corinthians and somebody else play. And those are teams that like, I knew about just because I grew up in Florida where, you know, there are a lot of, there's a large Brazilian population, but I would have never watched, uh, you know, a game between Corinthians and say Palmeiras before, but now like it, it's, it's so easy and so accessible. It, it, it's great for a fan uh, is what I basically do. yeah. It is, I mean, even like, you know, one thing I love watching is, UEFA packages all their World Cup qualifiers all you know and so you can see all of them and I like seeing games in like Andorra just to see what it looks like around the stadium and, yeah. and outside and, yeah. and CBS got the CONCACAF qualifiers so like I just love that stuff and, and it's it's kind of a soccer geek thing but just the ability to to see games from all over the world is, is amazing. The one thing I wish is that I still think my dream would be to have a platform you could subscribe to called All the Soccer and, and not have to sort of switch around platforms. I don't think we're ever gonna get there, but I, I do hear it from fans that are getting some subscription fatigue and just sometimes wanna know like, where do I get the game? And there's ways to find out, you know, there's places like fivesoccertv.com you can go to. And I use the app uh, FOTMOB on my phone, which has everything, tells you where it's going to be showing. But um, it's, a, I, it's complicated sometimes, right? Because even if you want to watch an English Premier League game, it might be on one of like three different NBC platforms. And you never totally know for sure which one. So it might be on NBCSN, it might be on USA, it might be on Peacock. Or it might be on NBC over the air. And that gets tough for like, I, I imagine like someone who's like 65, 70 years old just trying to figure this stuff out. It's kind of tough. 
absolutely. It's got to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, what, what advice would you give to a young journalist? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, the media landscape's changing so much all the time. And so it's hard to know sometimes, you know, what should I focus on, especially if you're starting out. But like, I do think there's some skills that are timeless, right? And so being able to write well is timeless. Um, learning a foreign language in my sport, learning Spanish is going to help you no matter what. In the United States, the most popular soccer team is the Mexican men's national team. And, and that coverage is typically in Spanish on Univision and Telemundo. But um, if you wanna reach a big audience, being able to, to speak Spanish is big. Um, you know, just acquiring interviewing skills if you wanna be a journalist. Um, one of the best lessons I ever learned was in my internship at the Miami Herald and the sports editor there who said, ask questions you don't know the answer to, which is actually pretty, a pretty great piece of advice because if you do your prep work and know your stuff, you don't just wanna do what you often see in sports journalism. A lot of times journalists just ask a question because they're looking to get an athlete or a coach to say what they want them to say. But if you're doing that, you're not really learning anything. So if you ask questions you don't know the answer to, your chances of learning something new increase. And so I've always tried to think of that and you can use that in any setting. It can be a post-game setting. It can be a long sit-down feature interview. It can be whatever. But um, the point of interviewing people is to learn new things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know, like I've done it. Couple of different ways. I like did a lot of research on people. Or if I know, like I don't know about you. Like sometimes, what if I know the person too well or know them personally, and I interview them, it's kind of like not. A, I can I know it's not a, a good interview type thing because it's like sometimes I forget to ask them stuff because I know it already. Yeah, that's part of. It. I mean, like that can happen. I mean, like and also too. I mean, like if if you listen to my podcast when I'm doing an interview, or if you um listen to a US soccer press conference that I'm on, my questions, you know, they're not perfect. I mean, I, I have some stinkers probably, but like my questions are probably a lot shorter than a lot of the questions from other journalists. And I think you're much better off, especially like in a press conference situation. And I, I sometimes yell at like the White House press conferences too, because everyone, too many journalists do this, They'll ask multi-part questions and then you're gonna get like lame answers for both your questions. Or um, they will go on some long speech and kind of try to show how much they know in their question. And I don't try to show how much I know in a question. I mean, like if I can ask a, a short question that I don't know the answer to, I think my chances are higher of getting a useful answer where we'll learn stuff. Yeah, for sure. Are you ready for some fun questions? Sure. All right, what's your, what's, uh, what's a, your favorite game that you ever covered? Oh, wow. Um, so many possibilities. Um, in, in soccer, 
it would probably be the 99 Women's World Cup final, which was just such a cultural event. And it was very early in my career. And it just, I, I remember so much about that day. Kind of crazy considering it was a zero zero game, but um, uh, that's what I would say in soccer. And then, you know, I did basketball a long time, uh, you know, from 96 to 2009 at Sports Illustrated. Um, so yeah, best basketball game I ever covered was probably, oh shoot. Um, there's some really good NCAA tournament games over the years, which I really enjoyed. I remember uh, Illinois, Arizona, 2005, they got Illinois to the final four. It was just an amazing game. Gonzaga had several great tournament games. Um, uh, and then, including one against Arizona, the Gonzaga lost. And then, um, you know, it's funny though, when you think about it, it's like the championship game is, is often not that great. Like the games that I remember standing out the most are the ones before okay. that. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what would be your, who would be your dream interview? Uh, it doesn't have to be a sports related interview, just any. Dream interview. Um, I think it would be fun to interview the current Pope about soccer. Um, he's, he's uh I, i'm still actually contemplating trying to do this because like he's a soccer fan uh he's from argentina he has a favorite team san lorenzo Lionel messi who's also argentine just sent him his jersey um i think it'd be awesome i i, I have this idea for a story and we'll see if i ever pull it off but talking to people either like the pope or even the president of the United States, I think it would be fun to tutor the president of the United States about how to do soccer small talk with other foreign leaders. And <laughs> I think it would help his job or her Definitely. job, you know? I mean, like if you can, like Angela Merkel is a big German national team fan. And if you want to like break the ice with Angela Merkel, I guess it's leaving office, but still the point stands talk to her about soccer um and so it would be fun for me to to put together sort of a tutorial that i could give the president and just write about sort of that interaction i think it'd be fun yeah that, that, that'd be awesome like i, I want to see yeah i want to I see and watch that happen <laughs> if uh if you could play as one player in the world if a man or a woman like who would you want to be for like a, a game oh wow i mean diego maradona at his highest powers i think is the best player of all time and you can have a long argument about whether Maradona was better than Pele. And a lot of that involves like length of career and, and length of time at the highest level. And obviously Maradona had a lot of self-destructive behavior. And so, you know, outside of 80, 86 to 90, um, you know, wasn't as good. You know, he just couldn't have been as good. Um, but from 86 to 90, I don't think anyone's ever been better than that. You know, he won the 86 world cup almost single-handedly, um, won two Italian leagues with Napoli, which had never won the league there before, um, in 87 and 90. 
in 90, when he won the Italian league, he was basically on a drug bender every, every, every like Sunday through Tuesday and somehow was able to like recover in time to like lead his team to the title. It's not a heartwarming story, but it's like kind of impressive. Um, and, you know, it's sad what happened to him that we lost him at age 60 last year. Um, but like when he was at his best, I, I, I recommend everyone to see that HBO documentary on Maradona because it's fantastic. I was just going to say, I, so Diego played a little bit before my time, so I didn't really get to catch all of it, but watching that documentary and really getting a feel for everything that he did was, it was incredible. Um, but I want to take that, and uh, one thing you touched on earlier was uh, Ted Lasso, uh, and mm -hmm. I know you recently interviewed Nick Muhammad. What was that like getting to interview Ted? I mean, not Ted, I'm sorry, getting to interview Nate, uh, especially after he's getting so much hate toward, because of the way he behaved <laughs> towards Ted. <laughs> I mean, Nick's done a tremendous acting job with Nate in season two, right? Because like we got to know this character in season one and he was sort of this feel good story. Seemed like a nice guy. You know, it seemed like he was getting an opportunity and uh, having a positive impact coaching. And then in season two, he takes this sort of dark turn and, and you learn more about his story with his family. And one thing I love about Ted Lasso is just they walk this very fine line between comedy and, and real stuff. Um, and they do it very well. So it was interesting for me to talk to Nick and, and just hear how he approached that as a guy who didn't have any formal acting training, who, you know, went to Cambridge and, and you know, was, like doing like really brainy stuff even before he started doing comedy. Um, and just sort of hearing his approach and yes, he's gotten some, <laughs> a lot of hate responses on social media and things like that. But like, he's right when he says like, he takes that as almost a badge of honor because that means he, he played the role the way he wanted to play it. Um, he's also just like the nicest guy in the world. And, and so it was really neat to, have that, that interview with him and, and get a sense of, you know, who he is and, and, and what he's doing with acting. And like, I was surprised, you know, he had never been to the United States. So he like for that, he was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy. And um, he had just returned for the second time in his life to the US because he's acting in a movie in New Mexico right now uh, with John Hamm and Tina Fey. So like clearly Ted Lasso's had a, a huge impact on his career and, and opening up opportunities that he didn't have before. Will we get a cameo from you in, in, in season three? <laughs> <laughs> My hope, and this is a very big fingers crossed. I almost feel like I might jinx it if I even mention it. I've had two friends get what I call book cameos. So if you ever see Coach Beard in the coach's office, he's holding up a book from time to time. Yeah. And that's included so far, my friend Jonathan Wilson and his book, Inverting the Pyramid, and then my friend Simon Cooper's book, uh, Football Against the Enemy, they've gotten book cameos. So I am still holding out hope that one of my two books will get a book cameo, but we'll see. <laughs> if it does, this is, this is a, a, a historic moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll, uh, one other question uh, I have for you is, 
I know in the U.S., our um, especially our soccer shows do not tend to be as dramatic as, for example, say uh, what is it, El Chiringuito? In <laughs> if, if we were to get one that was about U.S. soccer, could we see you on it? <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. You know, I, I don't know how many of your your listeners know El Chiringuito, but I love it. It's this Spanish. Uh, three-hour telenovela slash soccer talk show that comes on at midnight every night in Spain and it is tremendously popular and it is kind of this bare bones budget show that has like a band of like six or seven people who are regulars but the sound engineer is amazing and they have like all of these like arguments about the game from that night or Real Madrid or Barcelona and they'll have like thunder claps that go on and like the camera guy is like shaking like is like in the face of the people as they're talking and it's definitely extreme but I kind of love it in a guilty pleasure sort of way so I I, I wouldn't mind if we got something like that in the United States but uh um and I'd certainly be up for it I love that stuff who would your cast who would your, who would your six regulars? <laughs> you <laughs> well, I, I really like what Hercules Gomez and, and Sebastian Salazar are doing on ESPN, uh, on ESPN Plus with their show. Like they're trying to increase what I call la polemica, the, the arguments uh, over soccer. And, and they're trying to bring a bit more of a Mexican media style show. Um, you know, like their feeling, and I, I don't totally agree with it, but I, I respect it, is that we're too nice in American soccer media, that there's not enough criticism like there is in other countries. And um, I certainly feel like I've been critical at times over the years. I, 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 I have a personal record. The five times I've written that somebody should be fired, whether it's a, a, a coach a national team coach or the U.S. soccer president or, or the MLS commissioner, every single time that person has lost their job or been fired or resigned. So um, like that's one of those things that if you're going to do it, you better hope that like it actually happens. I have my friend Henry Winter, who's a very prominent writer for the Times of London, was telling me on my podcast once about how he wrote that Sir Alex Ferguson, Ferguson should uh, be out at Manchester United and that didn't happen. And Sir Alex Ferguson never let Henry Winter forget that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, la last one, what's something people don't know about you? Oh, wow. Um, I am a really good cook. Um, All right. And they may know that about me if they follow me on Instagram, but um, like I taught myself how to cook in 2000, my wife started 12 years of medical training. And so she had no time to do anything like that. And so I got really into cooking. Um, and for me, it's, it's a nice stress relief. I enjoy doing it. I like good food and um, I like to host dinner parties. Yeah, you know, we do and, and, and have people over. And um, even though I, I grew up in Kansas, uh, a very finicky eater, um, my horizons expanded quite a bit, uh, you know, starting in about late nineties, 2000. <laughs> That's awesome. 
well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, could you let the listeners know where they could follow you and find your podcast? Yeah. So uh, I'm on Twitter at Grant Wall, uh, W-A-H-L. Um, my podcast is called Football with Grant Wall, F-U-T-B-O-L. It's uh, on Apple and uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And all my writing is at grantwall.com. So you can sign up for free and get some of my posts, or you can sign up as a paid subscriber and get all of my posts. But um, it's you know a lot of fun these days to to have places like that for my content and, and you know be busy still with CBS on the TV front and, and everything. Again, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 